Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's great to be here today. I mean, what a difference a week makes. Wasn't it last week that it was snow and everything going on? I mean, it seems like this time might be when spring is actually springing, right? The light of the day seems to eclipse the darkness literally a little bit more each day. And I hope that you're feeling that in your own lives, no matter your own circumstances, I hope that there's a renewed sense of optimism. I, I woke up today with a, just kind of a grateful and a joyful heart thinking uh, about what we've gone through uh, as a world, as a country, as a community, as a church, in our own families over the last year and how amazing it is that God is so good and so faithful and we're able to gather together uh, right here in this place this morning. I, I am thankful and I, I appreciate you being here as well. I don't know if you know this about me, but I have played the drums for most of my life, certainly more of my life than I haven't played the drums. And I guess I was in all different kinds of bands starting uh, I don't know, when I was 11 or 12 years old and then through high school. And I, I guess I, part of me anyway, always imagined that, well, this is what I'm going to do for a living. I'm going to play the drums and it's going to be awesome. And uh, as you can tell, based on my current circumstances, <laughs> didn't quite work out that way. But several of the bands I played in along the way were really fun. But the one that was the most fun was this 1980s cover band that I played in. And... Somebody's excited. I mean, the 80s are great. Uh, and, and for those of you that know about the 80s, you'll remember that that was a time when people actually played real music. Uh, and, and so, you know, we had like Journey and Rush and U2 and, uh, you know, all, all the Toto, Bon Jovi, Def Leppard, all the, all the hits back when people actually played their instruments. Not like today where it's like... That's, that's not... There's a reason why Guitar Hero was so wildly successful. It had to do with all of that awesome 80s guitar rock. Well, anyway, that's what we played, a lot of it. And uh, so one, one day I get this call, and they, this guy wants to book us to play at the 100-year anniversary of the Boy Scouts, somewhere outside of Kansas City. And so we go down there and do this, and, and it was amazing. That was the biggest show we ever played. It was thousands and thousands of people. It's amazing. And so afterward, uh, you know, we did a good job. Afterward, the, the stage was just flooded with, with people, especially younger people. They wanted to talk to us, and they were so excited, and, and then I was excited. And so it, I just was thinking, like, well, this must, must be a little glimpse of what it must feel like, you know, to be a rock star, right? I mean, the kids are asking for autographs and everything, and, and I'm like, oh, this is just so... So I'm standing behind my drum kit, and this, this kid comes up to me, and he's like... Hey, can I borrow that pen? Because I had a pen sitting over here. And uh, he's like, can I borrow that pen? I'm like, I get the pen and he's got a little book there. And just right as my pen was starting to hit the paper, he grabs the pen out of my hand and he's like, thanks, I really want to get the guitar player's autograph. <laughs> so I'd be lying to you if I said that that didn't sting a little bit. I mean... What the heck? I, was my contribution to this that minimal that 
you know, as, as I'm standing there making eye contact with the keyboard player, he was just as unpopular as I was. We were just laughing like, what do we do about this? As the, the kids just continued to mob around the lead singer and the guitar player. It's always, it's always the guitar player and the lead singer. They get all the attention. They get all the recognition. And so I'm thinking, like, even if you haven't been in a 1980s cover band, which I would recommend you try, but even if you haven't been in one, you certainly have experienced something like this in whatever your own context is. Maybe, maybe it's a work thing. Maybe you, you, know, you did uh, all this work to, to either do analysis or, or make a fantastic report, and then you give it to the boss, and the boss takes it somewhere else and gets all the recognition and all the credit, and you don't even get the honorable mention. Or, or, or maybe it's like you go out with a group of friends and, and you're sharing stories and you tell your story and it's something really deeply powerful and, and meaningful to you and it's just crickets. And then someone else tells a story, which arguably you think, well, that's not as good as my story. And the whole place just gushes over, this is the best thing anyone's ever heard. And you wonder, wow, really? Or maybe it's just like you do nice things for people. Maybe it's a big thing. Maybe it's just a little thing. Maybe it's just taking care of like daily annoyances or thing tasks that need to be done. And you, you just do it over and over and over again. And no one ever seems to pay any attention or notice. Regardless of what circumstance you think of when we're talking about this, the reality is we, we don't really like the feeling that somebody is stealing the spotlight from us, right? We don't, especially for things that we have a lot invested in, contributions where we've, we've really put a lot into something. We don't like this idea that the spotlight is taken away from us and put on someone else. Matter of fact, it almost instantly turns into a competition because that's the way the world works. The world is set up in a way that it's always about competing for everything. And so we like to outshine other people because whether we want to say it out loud or not, deep down, we think that somehow our value is associated with status, with what we can accumulate, with, with what we, we, we think we have in terms of influence, power, money, whatever it is. We collect these things and then we assume that this is what determines our value, our worth. And we can say, you know, try to chalk it up to, well, it, this is all just really about making sure that uh, we give credit where credit is due. Okay, that's fine. But if you really want to get into the guts of what we're talking about, you got to go several layers down. And you have to realize that the inescapable truth and what Scripture tells us about ourselves is that we want to be the center of our own universe. We would rather be God than have a God. We would rather be the star of our own show. Now that might be uncomfortable to admit because we're not supposed to say this, but I assure you the quicker we come to that conclusion and, and the, the quicker that we understand the problem with that, then the better off we actually are in terms of knowing who to go to to help us with this. Because we cannot fix this problem ourselves. We certainly cannot fix this ourselves. We, in this world, 
are in a constant state of competition. We want to be recognized. We want to be celebrated. We want to be affirmed. We even want to be exalted. Again, because it's tied to our understanding of our value. And so today we're going to look at John chapter 3 because it sort of defies all of these expectations. Now, this is the third week we've been in John chapter 3, so this is the conclusion. We're going to look at the last few verses, 22 to 36, and we're going to talk about uh, this guy that we've mentioned before. His name is John the Witness, I've called him, or John the Baptist. This John is not the same as the gospel writer of John, but this John the Witness or John the Baptist, he reacts to a situation where the spotlight all of a sudden is going off of him and onto someone else, but he does it in such a way that is unexpected. It's incompatible with the way that we think the world works. Matter of fact, he went from hero to zero, and he couldn't be happier about it. He was relieved. Just fascinating. What is that about? That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we dive into it, let's pray. Let's ask God right now in these moments to come and be part of what's happening here, because we know that it's only through him that anything can be transformed. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together, for knitting us together as your body. That, Lord, we can come to you and surrender this time to you, that we might hear a word from you, not my words. Lord, hide me behind your cross and make yourself known. Lord, we are not reformation projects. We don't ask you to come and fix us up. Lord, we ask you to come and make us new. We ask, Lord, that you come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. That we might come to know you and follow you more deeply than we ever have before. And that you might put the old to death and raise the new to new life. This new life that we only have in you, in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible, John 3, 22 to 36, we're going to be looking at that. We'll read that together in just a minute, but just we have to play a little bit of uh, review here for just a second, because at the beginning of chapter 3, we talked about this three weeks ago, we spent all of our time talking about this guy named Nicodemus. And if you'll remember, Nicodemus is this very important person. He's a religious leader. He's part of the Jewish ruling council. He is a Pharisee, so he understands the law of Moses very well. Uh, just an, an overwhelmingly powerful, wealthy, religious person. Got a lot going for him. And then he has this midnight encounter under the cover of darkness because he didn't want anyone else to see. But he went to Jesus because even Nicodemus knew that there was something that he was missing. He thought it was a piece of like information, like Jesus would give him the key here and then he would understand and then he could go about doing what he was doing, which was doing a great job of all these religious things. But it was devastating for Nicodemus to learn that Jesus, not so much on this plan. Jesus says to him, uh, if you want to, see if you know this lyric, if you want to find what you're looking for, then you are going to have to be born again. You must be born again. It's not an option. It's not an add-on. It's not a suggestion or a tip. You must be born again. And oh, by the way, Nicodemus, you cannot cause this to happen yourself. This is a work of God that will only be done by God. And 
The Holy Spirit operates like the wind blows. We don't know where the wind is coming from. We don't control where it blows. We don't control when it starts or stops. And so Nicodemus hears all this and is devastated. This is devastating news to someone who wants to be in charge and in control. But guess what? You and I are just like Nicodemus. I know we don't want to say that we are, but we are. We're just like Nicodemus. We want to be in charge and in control of the destiny of our own lives. Because in the end, we think we can do the best job, but we can't. And so this John the witness is going to help us understand this more. Because the Bible tells us that we prefer darkness over light. We would rather stay in the darkness of our sin than we would risk exposing ourselves to the light, the light of life who is Christ. We, we would like instead to continue operating by the world's standards and to determine our value by how the world determines value. But, but John, the witness, helps us get away from all of this because Jesus is the real key to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the key to the kingdom of God. Now, we might intellectually understand that statement. We might be able to say, oh, of course, that's what we're supposed to say makes sense. But that's not the way we typically live our lives. We typically live our lives as if we are the ones calling the shots. We want that spotlight. We want it to be about us. And so this idea that Jesus is the kingdom, uh, the key to the kingdom, is something that the world rejects, doesn't understand, but John the witness knows this well. He knows this well. Remember, we heard about him first in chapter one of John when uh, it tells us that John came as a witness to testify to the light, but he was not the light. He came to prepare the way for the light, the arrival of Jesus, this promised one, the Messiah, the Savior. John the witness came to testify that Jesus was coming. But then Jesus showed up. All of a sudden, it wasn't just, well, Jesus is coming. It was Jesus is here. So while Nicodemus at the beginning of the chapter was not able to quite put his finger on what was special about this Jesus and couldn't quite put his finger on what uh, Jesus was telling him uh, must happen, this born again. On the other hand, John the witness points his finger directly to the answer. He points to the answer. The answer, of course, is Jesus. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. Look, there, there he is. That's who you want. Well, Nicodemus didn't quite understand that, but that's why this chapter ends with this story of John the witness, because he does help us understand that. And so that's where we're going to jump in at verse 22 and hear this account of, of John the witness and his disciples out in the countryside. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Anan near Salim because there was plenty of water and the people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom and waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for, the God gi- for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So John the witness was clear about who he was, and who he wasn't. But he's also clear about who he is in relationship to Jesus. So sometimes we fail to appreciate that little aspect of this. It's not just that he knows who Jesus is. It's not just that he points people to Jesus, although that's a big part of what we're talking about today. But it's also that he knows who he is in relationship to Jesus, meaning that he knows he's not Jesus. He's not the savior. He's not the hero of the story. That belongs to Jesus. He came, John, as a witness to testify and to prepare the way for the real hero. Well, and so who is he? You know, that everybody wants to know. Who, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Well, he says in chapter one, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. He describes himself in chapter one, verse 23, as I am the voice the voice of one calling out in the wilderness makes straight the way for the Lord. He was preparing the way for Jesus. He was the opening act, so to speak. He was not the main event. But that doesn't mean he wasn't popular. He was actually quite popular, very popular. We'll get into that in just a minute. But, but he knew based on who he was, and why God sent him. In other words, he understood his mission well enough to know that what he was doing was only temporary. What he was doing was only temporary. It was temporary work with temporary results, but it all pointed to a permanent savior. It all pointed to a permanent savior. Now, when you think of your life, regardless of what you do for a job or, or whether or not you have a job or you're in school or, or if you're retired or you're unemployed, whatever your circumstances are, no matter what we do, when we work for God's glory instead of our own, we point people away from ourselves and toward our Savior. When we work for God's glory instead of our own, we point people away from ourselves and toward our Savior which doesn't mean that just because our work might be temporary, just because even our ministries might be temporary, doesn't mean that they're not important. But it does mean that they are not the answer. They should be a means of getting us to the answer. 
And a lot of times, because of how much we have invested in them, we then start to take too much control and put too much of our trust in the things that we're doing rather than where those things should be pointing. Which, of course, is contrary to the way that the world is set up, the way the world works, the way the world understands. You know, it's countercultural. At least it is in modern-day America, right? Because here, it's all about what, what I want, what I do, what I can accomplish, what I wear, uh, how many people like me, what kind of affirmation can I get, how many followers can I get on Instagram? How much power am I able to collect in myself so that I can have this sort of control, we think, over my destiny? But even though the context has changed, and even though, you know, we don't, well, as far as we know, nobody in John the Witness's time was checking Facebook or trying to do anything on Instagram, but the problems are still the same because the root of it is still this idea that we don't like the attention being taken off of us and put on to someone else if that means I have to give up control. If I have to give up control to someone else, I don't like the way that makes me feel. I don't want to do it. And Doggone it, I think I can do a better job anyway. That is the darkness of sin. That is the blinding of what the truth about who Jesus is. That's how this happens. And so, obviously, when everyone starts going over to Jesus instead of being with John and his disciples, the uh, followers of John, John had his own disciples, they are very concerned about this. And so look in uh, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the ceremonial washing. Well, we don't know exactly who this argument was between. We don't know exactly what they were arguing about. But I imagine that maybe it's something like somebody comes back from the other side where Jesus is just doing a bang-up job over there. All the disciples, his whole crew over there, they got more people over there than they could possibly imagine. And so perhaps somebody came from over on that side and shows up to John's disciples and says, man, you guys are really screwing this up. There's nobody over here. Everybody's over there. Everybody's over there. You know, if you really wanted to do a better job, these are the things that you should be doing instead. Does this sound familiar to, to any of you folks? Let, I'll put it in first person for you. Uh, when it comes to think about the modern American church, most of the time the church spends all of its efforts just shuffling Christians from one church to another. We just keep going round and round because who's got the better coffee shop? Who's got the better band? Who has the most haze? Don't turn that on. Who's got the most haze? What, who's got the best programs? All of these kinds of things. And, and I have to tell you that when it comes to my understanding, and this has been confirmed for me over and over and over again, over this, especially over this last year, but if we are doing things that do not point people to Jesus, then we ought to stop doing them right away. The only thing, we, we view other churches as competition, all that kind of stuff. We got to get out of that. We have to start focusing on what our real mission is. Our mission is to point people to Jesus. That should be part of absolutely everything that we do. That should define who we are. We need to know Jesus and we need to make him known. Not just 
shop around for the best church we can find, but where can we find Jesus? Who is pointing us to Jesus? So as long as I'm in whatever position I'm in here, that is what we will do. We will continue to point people to Jesus, and that will be our mission. Not, I hate to say it, it's not about any of the rest of the stuff. All those things are nice, and all those things are valuable, and all of those things have their place, but none of those things can provide what Jesus provides. We have to point to him. And so John the witness, he, it's understandable why his disciples are concerned because he himself was very popular. Uh, he was extremely popular, matter of fact. And, and so uh, when all of a sudden he's not popular because everybody's going somewhere else, it gets the attention of the disciples. They start arguing over, well, what's really going on here? Look in verse 26. They come to John and say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing over there and everyone is going to him. So what do we really think they're asking? Well, they're really coming to him and say, hey, what are we doing wrong? What are we going to do about this? We've got to have a new plan. We've got to reinvent ourselves. We've got we to get people back here. We, we, we've got to understand how to get control of this situation before we lose everybody. But John doesn't seem concerned about this at all, which is not like what we would expect. And John himself, like I mentioned, had a rocket ship rise to popularity. He was abnormally and instantly popular when he came on the scene. Matter of fact, Scripture says that all of Israel was going out to be baptized by him. He was baptized. They would go out, they would confess their sins, and John would dunk them in the Jordan River as a means of repenting of their sins. But even John knew that what he was offering was only temporary. He knew that someone else, this Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Well, Jesus actually takes away the sin of the world forever, not just for now. And so John's message changed appropriately from he is coming to look there he is. So the expectation for John was that people would go find Jesus. He wasn't the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. And so instead of seeing Jesus as a rival, John saw Jesus and rejoiced. Instead of seeing Jesus as a rival, John saw Jesus and rejoiced. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking like, well, I don't understand how that applies to me. I promise you that every moment of your life, every day, something in your life is competing with Jesus. Something is competing with Jesus. So think about that. Do you think of Jesus as a rival to these other things that you are putting your hope and your faith and your trust in? Or do you see Jesus and rejoice that I don't have to figure this out on my own? I don't have to hold so tightly to these things that I only have the illusion that I'm controlling anyway. What would it be like if we, we released that grip and instead clung to Jesus instead? Saw him not as a rival, not as, oh, but instead... We rejoice when we see Jesus. We rejoice when people come to know him. We rejoice when we get to be part of pointing people to him. So look at uh, what John says about this in uh, verse 27. 
he tries to help these disciples understand what's really happening here. He says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Now that, I realize that's just a short sentence, but that is a wowzer statement right there. Because imagine the faith that John the witness must have in the sovereignty of God, the, the bigness of God, the unbelievable attention to detail to God, to know that if people are going over to Jesus instead of coming to me, it's only because God is sending them there. God is sending them to Jesus. We would do wise to remember that perspective because John did not see Jesus as competition, but instead he saw Jesus as the completion of his work. His mission was completed at the arrival of Jesus. So he was preparing the way, the way had been prepared. The fact that all these people are going to Jesus meant that he did his job well. Matter of fact, he did his job so well. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus referred to him as the greatest ever born among women. I don't know if you're born any other way, but uh, the, the, the reality of it is that Jesus even thought a lot of the work that John the Baptist did. But John himself knew that it was not his work that would be the final thing. So even though his mission was accomplished, the mission that he was preparing people for by pointing them to Jesus was just beginning. It was just starting. And so we see this in, in verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. That's really an important verse. He must become greater, I must become less. But all this talk about the bridegroom and this is all wedding imagery. Does this at all sound familiar? A couple weeks ago, we talked about the wedding at Cana. Remember that? Uh, I guess it was, I don't know how many weeks ago. It was several weeks ago. We talked about the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, where there's, Jesus is in, uh, in attendance at this wedding, and he turns water into wine. But here's a part that we didn't really talk a lot about. The water that he turned into wine was water that had been set aside for ceremonial washing. There were six stone jars that had water that were, it was for ceremonial washing. And so we talked about a little bit at least about how Jesus in this whole thing was not just making wine for wine's sake or for the sake of having a good party. He was also teaching us to understand that this ceremonial washing would never be adequate to wash us from our sin. That could only be possible through what he can do, through the shedding of his blood that washes us clean from our sin. That's what we were supposed to understand from that. And now here we have John the witness talking about this same kind of wedding imagery where he's saying, hey, look, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I'm the one waiting around for the bridegroom to show up. And when he's here, then he will do what I can't do. So John was, again, it, we should think of his baptism of repentance more like this ceremonial washing. I confess my sins. I'm dunked in the river. This idea is ceremonial, ceremonially clean. 
But even John knew that would not be adequate. So again, we see this imagery where the bridegroom, the one who can actually get the job done, is who this is all pointing to. So there's got to be something different about this baptism that John is doing for the repentance, confession, repentance, all this kind of stuff, and what Jesus is doing. Well, all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 33, John the witness testified that Jesus would come and he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That is the difference between life and death. Because Jesus told Nicodemus over and over again, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. And and the only way that happens is by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this idea that the Holy Spirit then is given, as these verses say, given without limit to those who believe and trust in Jesus, that makes what Jesus is doing not really anything like what John is doing. So John wants people. He's happy. He rejoices. He says his joy is now complete that people are going to Jesus instead of to him because Jesus can actually deliver the goods and John can only point people there. And so I just want to take a moment and say, whatever it is we're doing in our lives, we have a God who continues to love us, continues to guide us and lead us by the power of his spirit into greater and deeper relationship with his son, his beloved son, Jesus, who has come for us, died for us, was raised again for us so that we could have new life. All of that is happening. But our response in whatever we do is to recognize that we should be pointing people to Jesus in whatever our circumstances are. We have a God who is with us at the mountaintops and a God who is with us in the valleys. Nothing changes about our mission to point people to Jesus. We've got to point people to Jesus. And so John is saying, look, I was the voice crying out in the wilderness. I was the voice crying out in the wilderness and the time has now come for my voice to decrease And so the voice of Jesus can increase. You've got to listen to the voice of Jesus, not my voice. It's not about me. It's about him. It's only in his word, the word made flesh. It's only in the word of God, in Jesus, that our joy can really and truly and finally be made complete. The completion of our joy is found in the word of God who is Jesus, alone. And therefore, it's true that we are called in all that we do, we are called to exalt Jesus, not ourselves. We are called to exalt Jesus, not ourselves. When we do that, then we become witnesses, just like John. In other words, when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, when we count on him and we rely on him and we depend on him more than anything else, and when we follow the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and we live our lives in reflection of the light of life who is Jesus, then we become, our lives, our very lives become a living testimony to this one we're supposed to point people to. Our lives become living testimonies that point people to Jesus. And so the question is, 
Are we living for our own glory or are we living for God's glory? Are we living for God's glory? Do we measure success? What we think of when we're successful, do we measure it by what we have gained or what we think we can gain? Or do we measure success by how many followers Jesus gains? Regardless of how it happens. Can we celebrate when more people come to know Jesus? Can we recognize our mission as a church and as people, individuals, is to point people to this Jesus so that he gains more followers? Because when we come to know him and trust him, then we can finally, like I said earlier, we can let go of this death grip that we have trying to hold on to everything and trying to control everything. And instead, we can surrender our hands to this Jesus who has come and scooped us up and carries us close to his heart. We can cling not to all these things in our lives, but instead to the hope that we have in him alone. Because in Jesus, we are finally free from having to try to prove ourselves and our value to anybody. Jesus has already proven how valuable we are by coming for us. God sent his one and only son. We're free from having to seek affirmation from the world because the circumstances of the world don't understand how to deal with this kind of love of a God who loves us this much that he would do this for us. The world can't understand that. So we don't need to seek the affirmation of the world. We we don't need to try to understand how to impress other people with the things that we can acquire and all of the ways that we... That is not what we're all about. What we're about is pointing people to Jesus. And it's, it's only in the freedom that we have in Jesus that we can simply, finally, and completely serve others instead of compete with them. We can serve others instead of compete with them. Is that the way you understand your life? Is that how you live your life? Can we point people to Jesus rather than keep pursuing our own popularity? Can we really sacrifice and surrender our own desires for influence, power, popularity, and instead be okay with being on mission with Jesus to point people to him and to find their value in him alone? And can we love one another in this faith that only comes from Christ, in this faith that's given to us by the Holy Spirit? Can we love one another with this deep richness of faith instead of always cowering in the corner in fear? Can we live our lives in a reflection of who God is and what he's done for us? So today I want you to ask yourselves, do you, in your lives, do you have the pride of Nicodemus thinking that you can figure this out for yourself? That it really, at the end of the day, is all about your performance and what you can accomplish? Or do you have the humility that we find with John the witness? Do you have this kind of humility, this biblical humility that says, not my will, but yours be done?
Are we shining the light or are we trying to steal it? Don't be so quick to answer that one. Are we shining the light or are we trying to steal it? Are we standing in the way of that light and casting a shadow so that people that God has sent us to don't see the light, but instead see and celebrate us? How do we stop that? How do we instead refocus and point people to the hero, to Jesus? And finally, if you've not heard any of this before, maybe this is your first time at a church ever. My question for you is, is today the day that you will claim the joy that only comes in clinging to Jesus? Will you claim that joy today for yourself? Because he is calling you. He is calling you to himself right now in these moments by by the person and the power of his Holy Spirit to do what you can't do for yourselves. So are you willing to capture and receive him in such a way that your life is no longer yours, but becomes united with his? It's today the day for you to claim that joy. And if you have already claimed that joy, then is today the day that you will start pointing others to him. Will you lead other people to him? Will you go out of here changed, given this new perspective, coming out of the darkness and into the light and knowing that the mission that we have together, collectively and individually, is the same as what John the witness has. Jesus calls us to be his witnesses all through the world. Is today the day you get on mission with Jesus? I hope so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you don't leave us orphaned, but instead, God, that you have come to us in the person of Jesus with the promises that only you can make and deliver. Lord, we call upon you now in these moments that we have to worship you and to praise you, to ask you to come and do what only you can do. We surrender ourselves to you, Lord, and we ask that, uh, that you never let us wander off into thinking again that we can do this for ourselves, but instead that we, we know this only happens through you and you alone. May you put other people in our lives that will point us back to you when we start to wander off. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word that continues to call us back. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this place. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Lord, we exalt you above anything and anyone else. It's in you that we have our hope. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.